Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then it then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself. Hey, all right. Welcome to episode number 97 of Grow Bud Yourself. I want to thank you guys for, for listening, and we have a great show for you guys this week. Dr. Amanda Ryman is our guest. She is the founder of Personal Plants and the VP of Public Policy Research at New Frontier Data. We have our strain of the fortnight, uh, a grow tip, which is a checklist to get growing now, uh, plus questions answered from you guys as well as much more episode 97 is brought to you by sweet leaf plant nutrients excelsior extracts and our newest sponsor prime superior which offers all natural and organic compliant inoculant products including the world's first cloning honey to help improve your cloning success so visit primesuperior.com to learn more about them use the code ps420 for 15 percent off your entire order episode 97 coming at you All right, welcome back, and as always, thank you to DJ Jacques and Winstrong for the awesome reggae tune. Love it. Rewind it. Listen to it. Get it in your head. How are you doing, Mike? It's episode 97. Here we are. Yeah, man, 97. Pretty uh, pretty impressive. Yeah. Close to 100. I say so. I know. I hope someone baked us a cake. <laughs> we are approaching 100 episodes, which is exciting. And uh, this one's very exciting. We've got a great, uh, a great guest for the listeners. But first, I think uh, maybe we should discuss a little bit of uh, what's going on out there in the world of cannabis. Yeah, we should. Well, I, in my opinion, the big story is what's happening federally. And um, as our listeners no doubt know, because we talk about it quite a bit, um, the Safe Banking Act, which would make it uh, allowable for cannabis businesses to work with banks, has hit yet another bump in the road. So when we last checked in with the Safe Banking Act, Congress was trying to include it in the America Competes Act, which is a completely unrelated bill. Uh, America Competes has nothing to do with cannabis. It's an economic stimulus bill. But the House particularly thought it would be a good idea to include safe banking in the America Competes Act in order to just get it passed because we just want to reform banking with cannabis. But unfortunately, a conference committee decided to kill the Safe Banking Act uh, as it relates to the America Competes Act. So it's not going to move forward under that act, which essentially means it is now dead. Because as we know, our friends in the Senate, led by Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, uh, they want nothing to do with passing what they consider an incremental reform. And they're doing this because Schumer and uh, his, his cohorts have a federal legalization bill that they would like to introduce, even though they haven't introduced it yet. And they want to get uh, federal legalization done instead of wasting their time, I guess, reforming banking laws. So... Okay, despite passing the House at least six times now, the Senate continues to put off its vote on the Safe Banking Act. And uh, as I mentioned, Schumer holds out hope for a federal legalization bill. But the problem is, first of all, Schumer and company, they haven't introduced this legalization legislation, despite promoting it for a year and using it continually as an excuse to blow off incremental reforms. Secondly, it's utterly mind-wobbling 
to realize that the Democrats have controlled the House, Senate, and White House for two years, but haven't managed to pass any important cannabis bills. And the clock is now ticking on that control, as the House and even the Senate could flip to Republican control after the elections later this year. Now, if that happens, it could be at least two more years before pot laws are changed at the federal level. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It is, uh, I I prefer any change over no change, obviously. But um, when you say that the Democrats control the Senate, uh, it's a pretty close, I mean, it's 50-50, basically, and they need 60 without the filibuster. Uh, so I think that's really what's standing in the way. This happened here in New York as well when we had a Republican uh, House upstate, uh, and only after they were voted out did we, uh, did we get any kind of change when it came to cannabis. So uh, it's a tenuous you know, I would say, yes, they control the presidency. Yes, they control the House. But uh, the Senate is pretty well tenuous. You're, you're right about the they don't have the votes right now for federal legalization. But uh, but reports indicate they would have the votes to pass safe banking if they let okay. it have a vote. Well, <laughs> they would have the 60. Pass, so I'm saying pass the banking. Right. And let's work on everything else exactly. after. But, you Do know, something. I've. I've Yes, indeed. And, and it is a step in the right direction. And it feels like uh, it's not enough. But that's the way things happen. I mean, sometimes the, the change is glacial, you know, and as Dr. Martin Luther King said, uh, the arc of justice bends slowly, but towards justice. I don't know. The arc of history bends. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Why don't we look at what quote and say it again, because it sounded like it was going to be good. Yes. The actual quote is, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So, you know, basically what that means is don't let uh, the perfect be the enemy of uh, what's possible. And what you can gain now is important to gain. And we have, I mean, there's a lot of lessons out there to be learned from what's going on politically and in a lot of other ways as well that... uh, you know, at the end of the day, what we need to do is vote for people who, who agree with us uh, and make sure not to vote for the people who don't <laughs> agree with us and don't want to bend that arc towards justice. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of what it boils down to. Um, I voted today, actually, early voted today in here in New York. Uh, you know, just felt like getting out there and, and doing something, uh, doing my civic duty and... Uh, performing that one thing that you can actually do uh, that hopefully can make a difference if everybody did it. And uh, that's kind of where I want to get to. I don't really want to smoke with anyone who doesn't vote. You know, I don't really want to, I don't want to hang with those type of people anymore. I I think it's, uh, it's kind of shameful. I'm not telling them how to vote, although, you know, everybody knows how I feel about that. But, uh, um, but the fact that they don't vote and then still complain is just ridiculous. I, I, that I that I can't I can't deal with. Well, it does sound like uh, you and I are in agreement that we would love to see something pass at the federal level. And uh, the whole Safe Banking Act uh, situation is really bothering some of the House uh, Democrats, including Representative Ed Perlmutter from uh, Colorado. He's one of the the primary sponsors of Safe. And he had this to say to uh, Marijuana Moment. 
He told them, the Senate continues to ignore the public safety risk of forcing cannabis businesses to deal in all cash. In the wake of the Senate's inaction, people continue to be killed, businesses continue to be robbed, and employees and business owners in the cannabis industry continue to be excluded from the financial system. So, yeah, we would love to see some action taken. Yeah, and you know, I agree with that. I do think that we need uh, the banking situation fixed. Obviously, there's a lot of other things that need fixing, too. We need to get the 40,000 people that are locked up uh, for cannabis offenses out of jail. Mm -hmm. We need to uh, create a system where people can benefit uh, that have suffered. And all of those things need to happen. But the banking thing does, too. And if that's what can happen now, let's make that happen now. I don't see the point in holding back anything that we can accomplish. Uh, And so... I'm all for it, and I hear I hear both sides, and I have my opinion, and I'm all for any kind of incremental change, two steps forward, one step back, whatever it is you want to call it. Uh, it's a step in the right direction, and that's the way it should be. And then you know, let's get that done, and then and then move forward with some other things too. I mean, like it doesn't mean the 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 fight doesn't end with banking, hmm. <laughs> obviously. So, yeah. uh, but let's get what we can, and then get more. I guess and maybe continue that's... to demand what we, what we want, you know. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe that's the the key to it. If there were a legitimate reason for holding off on safe because you were going to pass something else, then I, I could support that. But as far as I see, there's nothing on the horizon that's going to benefit from holding back safe. So to me, it just seems like let's get something done that we can get done right now. Yeah. And And Biden would support it. We don't even know if Biden would support federal legalization, right? Who knows? Um, Yeah, but I mean, let people put money in the bank. Let people start taking out loans and we can compete on a global level. Uh, Because right now, you know, Canada has national legalization and Canadian companies. I mean, obviously not all of them are doing doing well at this, um, but they're able to take out loans of hundreds of millions of dollars and do business throughout Europe and other places. Uh, in the world and be part of a global cannabis uh, thing and we're still we still haven't even figured out state to state commerce uh, and where we can put our money in the bank which is an amazing cool g-rap song that's <laughs> uh, very underappreciated so if you want to google it google cool g-rap money in the bank uh, to hear a song from 1986 or 87 that still stands up to this day as a very incredible rap song all about the same exact issue putting money in the bank you know what i mean instead of in the mattress or you know uh having houses full of cash or uh you know buying up all this uh art (laughs) glass art and all these things i mean the we, we we need that we need to be able to bank uh and put money in the bank as uh g rap would say there you go. I feel like Ari Melber. He's always quoting rappers. <laughs> I don't know. It could be your thing. I like it. Yeah. Large Professor also is on that record, as well as uh, a, a very early appearance from Freddie Fox. Oh. Bumpy Knuckles. Bumpy Knuckles. Okay. So. There you go. Yeah. Classic, classic track. Money in the Bank. Money in the Bank. So, yeah, maybe that'll happen for cannabis companies. That should be the the theme song for the the safe banking act in a perfect world. Mm -hmm. I like it. But you'd have to 
get like some amendment to have that introduced as part of that bill and it just would never pass so i don't know it may not be possible well we shall see either way it's a good tune yeah there you go well that's what's going on in the world of weed but we have a really exciting show including an excellent interview coming up Yes, indeed. I've been uh, very eager to have Dr. Amanda Ryman on the show. Uh, she's been an activist for, for decades. Uh, she is involved in every aspect of plant medicine. She's basically an expert on uh, cannabis as well as uh, the relationship between people and all of the different psychoactive plants and, and fungi. And um, she's the VP of Public Policy Research at New Frontier Data. Uh, also council member and instructor at Gangier, which is uh, uh, basically the ultimate uh, school to learn to become a cannabis sommelier. And she's also the founder of Personal Plants. So we're going to get into all of that. Um, and at Personal Plants, you can actually buy grow kits to grow uh, your own personal uh, plants and cacti uh, that uh, have a variety of different effects. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say without further ado, uh, let's take a break and come back with Dr. Amanda Ryman. If you're a grower or you're thinking about starting your first crop, then you need to know about Sweet Leaf Plant Nutrients. Sweet Leaf has an incredible line of organic fertilizers and, of course, their legacy line that includes organic and some synthetic fertilizers. Check them out at sweetleaf.com. That's S-U-I-T-E-L-E-A-F.com. The code DANKO15 gets you 15% off everything at Sweetleaf. That's 15% off their signature line of nutrients as well as essentials like complete indoor hydroponic grow tent kits and grow lights, plus awesome apparel, backpacks, and much more. If you join our Patreon, you'll get access to additional codes worth 20 and even 25% off. Patreon supporters also receive free Sweetleaf nutrients just for signing up. Sweetleaf provides all the tools necessary for the modern gardener. Check them out at sweetleaf.com and remember the code DANKO15. All right, welcome back. And we have a very special guest for you guys this week. Uh, she is a PhD with more than two decades of experience in the cannabis industry uh, and been involved in pretty much every aspect of uh, the cannabis industry. Also the VP of Public Policy Research at New Frontier Data and the founder of Personal Plants. Uh, please welcome Dr. Amanda Ryman. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it is a pleasure indeed. And uh, Dr. Ryman is a pioneer in the uh, cannabis world and an, ac an expert on plant medicine beyond just cannabis as well, uh, including uh, cacti, uh, fungi, and all kinds of other uh, um, psychoactive plants, uh, plant medicines. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got uh, involved in uh, cannabis and, and plant medicines. 
Sure. Um, so I grew up in the Midwest. And in the mid-90s in Chicago, I was a social work student and learning about the social justice implications of the drug war. Um, I grew up in an upper middle class, very white area. I really didn't have knowledge or awareness of what was happening with the drug war and the impact that that was having on entire communities until I started studying social work in downtown Chicago and really learning more about the impact that this had about the racial um, policies like mandatory minimum sentencing and the disparity between crack and uh, powder cocaine. And this was what really kind of drew me in and got me involved with organizations like Students for Sensible Drug Policy in the late 90s, and really what propelled me to want to get a PhD. Uh, I felt that there was a lot of policy work that had to happen. And unfortunately, I also felt that as a woman and as a social worker, it was unlikely that my voice was going to be taken very seriously unless I went all the way and had a doctorate. So I applied to UC Berkeley. I was accepted and I moved to the Bay Area in 2002, completely unaware of the medical cannabis revolution that was happening in San Francisco, Oakland and Berkeley at the time. You have to think this is early 2000s, very early Internet. Uh, we really didn't have the proliferation of news that we have today to let us know what's happening everywhere. So I landed in Oakland and was pretty shocked at what I saw, uh, the dispensaries, the medical access, the destigmatization of cannabis. It was all happening. And so being a researcher and somebody who was interested in this from a policy and public health perspective, I decided to study the model of the early dispensaries in the Bay Area as really a community health model. And of course, we know that that model was created um, out of the HIV crisis in San Francisco in the 80s and 90s and was really created by the LGBTQ plus um, community as a way to bring in community destigmatization to people that were highly socially marginalized at the time. So I figured it was a model that was important to study and document as beneficial because I knew in my heart that we were moving more towards the Apple Store, the Walgreens, the CVS model of cannabis consumption, that it was going to be highly commercialized uh, and that it was going to be much more of a commerce model. And so I wanted to capture the health model. I wanted to capture the community model. And that was really the beginning of the research that I started doing. Back then, the researcher pool was very, very small. It was kind of like a kiddie pool in the backyard. There were very few of us doing social research on cannabis. And so so in a way, it was right place, right time, where I had the ability, the backing of my university to really start this inquiry, which set me on a trajectory to not only continue to study the public health impacts of medical cannabis and adult use cannabis, but also get involved in policy work and helping to define the future of the industry. Yeah. And also among the, the, the uh, therapeutic values that you studied was also uh, cannabis as a substitute for alcohol and um, harder drugs as well. Can you t talk a little bit about that, that work? Sure. Um, so, you know, again, real life gives me a lot of inspiration for what I end up studying. Um, I've been a medical cannabis patient myself since 2002. I go to Dr. Frank Lacido in Berkeley, who's been recommending cannabis for a very long time as 
longer than he's legally been able to. And he has a very extensive intake form that he gives to patients every year. And one of those questions was, do you use cannabis as a substitute for alcohol? Do you use cannabis as a substitute for prescription drugs? So in my doctoral dissertation, I decided to include this question in my survey because Dr. Lucido included it in his. And I found that indeed, a large percentage of patients were using cannabis as a substitute. So I decided to dive deeper into this topic uh, with a larger sample collected at Berkeley Patients Group in 2007. And this showed, uh, indeed, again, there was a large percentage of patients that were consciously using cannabis as a substitute for something else. That research has now been replicated all over the world and has really become part of the harm reduction conversation about how people can use cannabis to reduce or eliminate the use of other substances. I've studied this in the context of methamphetamine. I've studied this in the context of opiates. And it definitely seems to be a tool that people are successfully using and I hope it gains more acceptance in that manner. Absolutely. Uh, also, you're also a council member and instructor at uh, Gangier, Gangier uh, which uh, basically creates a, a sommelier for cannabis. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your work with that organization? Sure. So we formed the Gangier Council several years ago with the idea of creating a curriculum for a cannabis sommelier, like you said. My interest in this was really from the customer service patient interaction perspective. Because as I mentioned, right, those early dispensaries, you could go in and spend time. Like you could sit and you could smell the different products and you could talk to people about what might be helpful and you could consume on site. You know, there was really a whole experience around it that helped initiate the consumer into cannabis. That has all but gone away. Part of that is regulatory reasons, right? We can't smell the product anymore. It's very difficult to have on-site consumption. And part of it is capitalist reasons, right? The more customers you can get in and out the door in a day, the more money you're going to make. And if you have to stop and talk to someone for 20 minutes, that's three or four customers that you didn't get to service because of that one person. So the idea behind the Gangier, at least one of the ideas, is to bring back that consultation aspect, to bring back that ability for a consumer to go into a dispensary or at an event and really sit down with somebody that's deeply engaged and informed on the cannabis plant and its various products and have a no rush interaction with them about what you're looking to get out of your cannabis experience and what products might be right for you. And I think there's a lost art there. Um, back in, gosh, 2003, I developed a bud tender training guide for Americans for Safe Access. And it was based on social work interaction protocol, right? It was based on how I, as a social worker, would interact with a client that's very client-centered, that's starting where the client is, that's letting them lead the conversation. And so we took a lot of those elements and infused them into the curriculum of the Gangier program. So there is a customer service protocol that we developed that's part of the examination that people go through in order to get their certification. They also have to take a written exam. Um, so there's an online course component of it. And then they have to complete successfully the systematic assessment protocol. So thinking like Wine Spectator magazine, 
uh, zero to 100. How do you tell what a good bottle of wine is? It's certainly not by the alcohol content, but yet a lot of people are still choosing their cannabis based on THC percentage. So we wanted to create an opportunity for the way the cannabis has been grown, how it's been cured, what that does to the presenting tastes and aromas as a way to decide what quality is versus orange hairs and high THC, which is how a lot of us were choosing our cannabis when we didn't know any better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, a couple of years ago, t- two years ago, you founded Personal Plants. Um, and that, I guess, is a, a way that people can, uh, can learn more about and actually get kits to uh, grow some of these plants. Can you talk a little bit about Personal Plants and, and, and what the mission of, of that is? Absolutely. So personal plants has been my passion project here for the last couple of years. And it was really born out of how I saw society um, interact with our food. Right. So we go to the grocery store, we buy prepackaged food. Uh, we don't really think about where it came from. We don't think about where it was grown, how the workers who grew it were treated. We don't have a personal relationship with corn. We don't have a personal relationship with wheat. Um, And most of us do not have a personal relationship with pigs or cows, yet we consume all of these things in quite large amounts, quite mindlessly. So looking at cannabis and where I've seen that go, where the focus has now become on Delta 8 and isolates and manufactured products, I feel like people are losing their connection to the plant. And for me, the connection to the plant has been really what's anchored me in the cannabis space. If I didn't have a connection to this plant, I would have left this space a long time ago because it's not an easy place to be. But because of my connection to the plant, I feel a responsibility to continue to advocate on behalf of the plant. So looking at the changing laws around psychedelic plants and imagining a similar trajectory, I started to think about the importance of people developing relationships with these plant medicines, regardless of whether they're going to consume them. So the idea behind personal plants is indeed, you know, we have a nursery. You can order ayahuasca cuttings and chacruna cuttings and passion flower and ice plant and morning glories and um, tobacco and, you know, all of these entheogens that have unbelievable believable spirits inside them, and we'll help you grow them. Um, We'll help you develop that relationship. And it's my hope that if we can establish this as something you do, right, you grow the plant before you consume the plant, that maybe we can evoke some mindfulness into the future ways in which we exist alongside these amazing flora. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly uh, my decision to start cultivating cannabis changed my relationship with the plant entirely and, and really, uh, no pun intended, blossomed, you know, uh, this passion f- for for the plant and for uh, activism as well, because beyond just, you know, profit or, uh, you know, heavy harvests or anything like that, it, it became really more of a, of a, of a passion. And I think actually cultivating these plants and not just seeing their final form can really uh, can activate people in, in, in those ways. I think that's really important. And so you also, uh, you're the VP of Public Policy Research at New Frontier Data, and that is uh, an organization that basically uh, monitors and uh, evaluates the data that's coming from 
the cannabis industry and the hemp industry as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, you know what what uh, trends you're seeing and also what the work at New Frontier Data uh, encompasses? Absolutely. You know, working at New Frontier is a dream for me uh, as somebody that started doing research in this field when there was no data <laughs> and, you know, having to develop our own data, uh, which was very, very uh, minuscule at the beginning. You know, I often joke, as I did at the conference last week, that when I did my doctoral dissertation and collected data on 130 medical cannabis patients in 2005, it was the largest sample of medical cannabis patients in existence at the time at 130. Uh, so, you know, the need to collect collect large-scale data has always been a problem in the cannabis industry. And so New Frontier kind of being that think tank, uh, gathering, collating, and, um, and, you know, really translating data both from the industry and point of sale, uh, economic projections and what we're seeing happening at the state level, at the international level, and then also looking at consumer behavior and what we're seeing around cannabis consumers and how all of these things fit together to tell a conversation comprehensive story of what's happening in the world of cannabis. So, you know, one of the things that we're seeing, especially on the consumer side, is this idea of are you a medical consumer or are you a recreational consumer? These two camps have been fighting each other for a long time. And the medical people say, everything is medical. Everything is medical. And the re recreational people say, come on, pot is fun. Why are you trying to make it so serious? It's about lighting up and listening to music and watching good movies. Um, and I think what we're seeing as the consumer market matures is that it isn't either or. It's not mutually exclusive. Most people are both. Most people are both. Most people are effect pairing. Right. So they're saying, what am I trying to get out of cannabis from cannabis at this moment in time? Am I trying to sleep? Am I about to go to a concert? Am I just having a stressful day, but I still have to get some work done? And then people are matching the product with that intention. And so this idea that we're somehow saying you're a medical patient, you're a recreational consumer. And in some states, that designation comes with financial incentives. And in some states, that designation comes with legality. So, you know, in a state like Oklahoma, if I'm a qualifying patient, then I'm a legal cannabis consumer. If I'm still using medicinally, but not a qualifying patient, I'm an illicit consumer. So I think one of the things we're seeing as states pass these laws is that state lines are becoming arbitrary that people are using cannabis for a whole host of reasons that vary from day to day. And that the reality is we're trying to put this in a box when it really is just an ocean of possibility. So I'm hoping that as we destigmatize and normalize cannabis even more, we'll see, you know, different ways for people to get compensated for, you know, traditional medical use, like through insurance reimbursement. But the reality is it's a therapeutic tool. And we shouldn't have to justify that to anyone in order to have legal access. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, state lines. You're also involved with the Cannabis Travel Association. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, cannabis travel and what, what sort of, uh, you know, what the work of that association is and what you see uh, as trending in that, in that realm? 
Absolutely. You know, cannabis travel used to be mostly medical travel. So it was folks who lived in states that didn't have access that were traveling to states um, and maybe even staying there long term just so that they could have access to medical cannabis, many times for children that were looking for access to medical cannabis. Have we seen more adult use markets open, especially in tourism heavy places like Las Vegas, California, now we're seeing New York come online. There's a whole industry emerging, not dissimilar to wine tourism around cannabis tourism. People wanna see where the cannabis is grown. They wanna go to farm tours. Uh, I live up here in the Emerald Triangle, so farm tours are a very big part of cannabis tourism up here. Uh, in other places, more urban areas, people wanna go to dispensaries. You know, They want someone to take them to three or four dispensaries, just like you go wine tasting. Uh, people wanna sample products. And then I think there's this whole kind of tourism experience market that's emerging, which is, you know, all right, we're going to set you up with a whole package, right? We're going to have you go to a cannabis-friendly B&B, and then we're going to pick you up, and we're going to take you to a farm, and then we're going to go have lunch in this beautiful oceanside area, and then in the afternoon, we're going to go to a dispensary. And um, so I'll give you a little uh, heads up. So we're, we're, New Frontier has a report coming out in a couple weeks on millennials that I did, and millennials are the ones that are doing the tourism. And I don't think this should surprise anyone. Uh, millennials are more likely to have underage kids at home. They're less likely to be able to consume at home. And they're looking to get out of their house. Uh, they're looking to get out of their house and have an experience. Um, and so they also have the, the disposable income in order to take vacations. So I do think that this industry is going to only increase uh, in magnitude. You have places like Thailand that are now legalizing CBD, um, medical cannabis, and have a huge wellness tourism market for retreats and spas and other things. So I could see eventually cannabis being incorporated into traditional spas. You know, when I go to a spa with my mom, they have plant medicine options. You know, they have CBD and they have other types of holistic health care. So why not? have a class on cannabis tincture making. You know, why not have a dispensary on site? Uh, there's Coral Cove Wellness uh, run by the amazing Keiko down in Jamaica, um, where, you know, you can put the little tag on your door for a continental breakfast, but instead it's a dispensary order. Uh, you've got a dispensary potentially opening in the airport in Vancouver. Um, so, you know, I think that it's going to start becoming more and more incorporated. I'm waiting for the dispensary to open on the cruise ship. <laughs> absolutely absolutely our friends uh bobby and april also have higher way travel where they uh put together these really nice uh curated trips in hawaii and jamaica and all these places uh, and in california um and i just think that uh there's so much potential there as well um now you mentioned cbd what sort of trends are you seeing in the hemp industry uh in your work at new frontier delta eight Delta 8, yeah, that's a big one. I mean, I mean, you know, one of the huge trends we're seeing is hemp-derived cannabinoids, right? It's a gray market. Um, you know, the, the feds really haven't, you know, deemed them illegal if they're derived from hemp. Um, so, you know, we're seeing Delta 8 not only in illicit markets like my home state of Indiana, but we're seeing it here I, in Mendocino, you know, that the little bodega on the corner, they have Delta 8 vapes. And I actually asked the owner, who's buying them? You know, are these kids who are not old enough to buy in a dispensary? And he said, no, it's adult cannabis consumers who want to pay less. 
So I think the price and the taxes associated with cannabis as a product is driving people to markets like Delta 8, which is unfortunate because it's highly unregulated. So that's one area that we're seeing. Um, you know, I would say, of course, the question becomes, when is hemp going to be processed at a price that's going to allow for mass adoption as a building material, as a fuel? Um, you know, it has the potential, but there still is the processing of these products that costs money and that is highly specialized and niche. So mass adoption of hemp, I think, is something that is also kind of up in the air about when that will happen. Um, and then there's the seeds. So I think one of the more interesting things that happened recently was the DEA statement that cannabis seeds are hemp um, because they have less than 0.3% THC in them, which, of course, they do. Um, but what does this mean for the sale of seeds across state lines? Um, what does this mean for people in illicit markets obtaining what will become cannabis? Um, so I think that, you know, again, the line just gets blurrier and blurrier. And the reality is we're talking about the same plant. We're just talking about high THC hemp and low THC hemp. So I think we're starting just like the medical and adult use markets, the less stigmatized cannabis gets and the more normalized, the more we're understanding that these differences are political. These differences are not botanical. So in your over uh, two decades of uh, studying this relationship between uh, people and uh, psychedelic plants, how do you think we can make the breakthrough to the mainstream as far as um, the, using these ethnogens uh, to treat uh, post-traumatic stress, depression, uh, couples therapy, for instance, uh, even just um, in any of those aspects, I think there's so much potential there, but how do we break through to, to the mainstream? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that there's, um, there's a window that opens every so often, and a lot of things have to happen at the same time for this window to open. In the literature on public policy, they call it the policy window. And it's basically saying that in order to have real policy change, you can't just have public opinion, or you can't just have the will of the legislators, or you can't just have the industry opportunity. These things have to coalesce at the same time in order to have meaningful change. And that's what we saw with cannabis. Right, because there were definitely times in history where the public liked cannabis, but the legislators wouldn't do anything, or an industry opportunity came along, but the public wasn't behind it. So I think similarly, we have to meet the public where they're at with this. And there's a couple things that we have, I wouldn't want to say to our advantage, because it's not because of a nice, wonderful thing that's happening in the world, but people are stressed. Um, mental health issues are at an all-time high. Distrust of pharmaceutical companies is at an all-time high, partially because of vaccines and all of the surus around that, even though I 100% support vaccines. It did create this discourse around trust um, that I think has people seeking alternatives to what we might call more traditional ways of healing themselves. And at the same time, there's a lot of healing that needs to be done. Oh, and at the same time, politicians seem to be more willing than ever to entertain some of these ideas, mostly for economic reasons, which, oh, by the way, we also need right now because we have economic problems in this country. So all of that is to say, I do feel we're entering into this period where the window is opening and people are a lot more willing to hear this 
as a possibility, but then we have to meet them where they're at. So we can't be talking about tripping balls on ayahuasca as a way to feel better around PTSD. We have to use language that people are familiar with. They have to understand that what we're talking about is an opportunity for a transformative experience. And oh, the catalyst for this experience happens to be a plant that's been used for thousands of years with much success indigenously. But I think what comes along with that and where I want the idea of growing your own and the mindfulness is that we, we, we go right from availability and access to consumption. It's like, oh, this plant is legal. Let me put it in my mouth. And I think that with these plants, if we want this to be long lasting, if we don't want to roll these laws back after two years, because now there's like ayahuasca ceremonies happening on every corner and who knows who's leading them. I think we have to take this seriously. And when I say we, I'm speaking to all the folks out there who want to be involved in this industry. Um, if we want this industry to be long lasting, to really give what it can to society and heal society, we have to take it seriously as well, which means we may not make that much money at first, right? There may not be an economic benefit to being involved in this space at first. We have to do it right. We can't just do it fast. And I know that capitalism hates that, but the plants don't. Um, you know, if you've ever grown a plant, you know you can't rush it, that the plant expresses itself as it wants and you're there to help nurture it, but you are not there to control it. And so I think if we take that same approach with psychedelics as an industry, we're there to nurture what the plants have to offer. We are not there to control them. Then I think we're going to see mass adaptation and we're going to see people feel good about it. If we automatically start talking about consumption and really facilitating consumption without mindfulness and without training and just because we can, you know, we're lucky with cannabis because it doesn't have a high chance of an adverse reaction. But some of these plants in the wrong hands and for the wrong purpose are not something to play around with. So, you know, I really encourage people, if you're seeing this as just an opportunity because the laws are changing and this industry is evolving, please do your research. You know, please become educated and trained and mindful about the plants that you're working with and that you're encouraging people to use um, because we do want this to work. And it's not going to if we don't take it seriously. Absolutely. Uh, now, a lot of people tell me, uh, you know, I don't have a green thumb. I can't uh, keep a houseplant alive. Uh, what would be your advice to those entry level people uh, interested in creating some of these uh, medicines for themselves, but not really knowing where to begin? Oh, absolutely. You know, not all plants are easy to grow and a lot are easier to grow than others. So I say start with the ones that are easy to grow. Cacti. Cacti. Very easy to take care of. Very hard to kill. So get a Wachuma San Pedro cactus. Uh, we sell them on our site. You can actually buy them in quite a few nurseries. Uh, you may even have one at your local Friedman's or Lowe's nursery right now. Um, so start there. Again, super easy to grow, a great plant to interact with when you begin. Uh, there's other plants that also grow really well. Uh, morning glories, for example, are fairly easy to grow and they have psychedelic properties. Um, and then cannabis. You know, I started growing cannabis in my apartment in Chicago in 1997. Um, I was not successful at it until a couple of years later. Uh, but once I kind of got it down and learned to know what the plant needed, it's ever since then, it's been very easy for me to grow cannabis. And I literally just put seeds in a pot with soil and water and put it outside. 
Um, so, you know, I will also say that different people have different plants that speak to them. So, you know, grow a couple of different plants and see which ones seem to respond to you um, because it is an exchange of energy between you and the plant. So um, I'll also say there's a lot of death in gardening, a <laughs> lot of death in gardening, um, whether it's because the plant died before its time for whatever reason or because it's just part of its life cycle. So get used to that. Um, it's okay. You know, it, it, plants don't look at death the same way we do. So, you know, it's part of its cycle. Try again. Um, and I think that would be my advice. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to say thank you so much for uh, your pioneering work uh, in this emerging, uh, amazing industry. And, uh, yeah, let people know also how they can find out more about personal plants, about you uh, and uh, everything that you're involved in. Sure. Um, well, our website is mypersonalplants.com. So very easy there. And then uh, probably the easiest would be to find me on Twitter, which is just at Amanda Ryman. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on all the places. Um, but really, I would love for people to check out our shop uh, on My Personal Plants. Uh, we work with an amazing sacred garden down in Oakland, California. That's all organic. They propagate everything by hand. Uh, they package everything by hand. And so it really is bringing that sacred garden from our home to your home. Um, and then we have care instructions. So we have a whole booklet that tells you how to care for every plant that we sell. And then we have videos on YouTube that show you more about the plants, what they're supposed to look like, uh, how they've been traditionally used. So a lot of resources for people who are interested in growing their own sacred plants. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Amanda Ryman, uh, for being on the Grow Bud Yourself podcast. And uh, we wish you continued success. And uh and we'll be eagerly following all of your uh, adventures and, uh, and work in, in this industry. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. We'll be back after these messages. Do you want to take your cultivation program to the next level and grow higher quality, naturally healthier plants? Our new sponsor, Prime Superior, can get you there with simple, safe, and effective products. Whether you're starting with seeds, clones, or your plants are already established, Prime Superior has a product for you. And best of all, you don't have to change anything in your grow program. Just add Prime Superior. Do you want the best biological for cannabis growing? Prime Superior's proprietary strain of Bovaria bassania increases terpenes, cannabinoids, and yield. Inoculate early with Prime Superior and you will see faster germination and larger root mass, which will help you propel your nutrient uptake. Faster growth and more photosynthesis means higher yields and more terpenes and cannabinoids. Plus, Prime Superior has the world's first biological cloning honey to help improve your cloning success. Now's the time to try Prime Superior. Grow Bud Yourself listeners can use the code PS420 for 15% off their entire order at primesuperior.com. So don't hesitate, inoculate, and visit primesuperior.com to learn more. Hey, all right. Welcome back. And uh, thank you again to uh, Dr. Amanda Ryman uh, for that very informative uh, chat. 
And here we are. We are in the cultivation segment, and I believe it's been a fortnight and a half. <laughs> and yes, this is a fortnight. And yes, this is a fortnight. Strain of the fortnight. What do you got for us? Uh, what do you got for us this week? Strain of the fortnight. <laughs> Strain of the fortnight. Ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> So that means, of course, it's time for our strain of the fortnight and a half. What do you got for us? Yeah, so I'm going to throw it back uh, to a strain uh, that I've loved for many, many years. The strain is Cali Mist uh, from Sirius Seeds. And this is a strain that's been around for, gosh, uh, several decades. Uh, it won the first place uh, Cannabis Cup Sativa in the year 2000, uh, which, you know, it seems like a long time ago now when you think about it. Uh, second place, uh, Cannabis Cup Sativa in 2002, or I should say third place, and uh, pretty, you know, substantial flowering time, 10 to 12 weeks, uh, a little bit more, you know, two or three weeks more than most uh, of your average strains, but that's because this is uh, very sativa dominant. I would say, um, you know, people always ask me what are the more sativa dominant strains you can get. Uh, these days that that aren't hazes and I always tell them Cali Mist um, Strawberry Cough is in there but I would say Strawberry is like you know 60-40 maybe 70-30 on the Sativa dominant side Cali Mist on the other hand is more like 90% um, and that's why you get that longer flowering time uh, it's serious seeds strain uh, so you know they don't put out a lot of strains and when they do they make sure they're very stable uh, I know that they don't really talk a lot about, um, you know, the heritage of it. The closest I could get, uh, you know, from Simon at Sirius Seeds, who has been on the show, so uh, we should go back to that episode as well. But he told me it was a Cambodian sativa uh, crossed with a silver haze that was going around Holland. So, um, but I think it's the Cambodian that makes it really unique. And uh, it really is one of my favorite sativas to smoke in Amsterdam all those years of all those cups. Um, not a haze, so it doesn't have that, like, uh, kelpy, hazy kind of thing going. Uh, very energetic, uh, long-lasting, uh, great daytime smoke. Uh, amazing with uh, a nice cup of coffee or uh, in, in Amsterdam they do, you know, a nice hot chocolate as well. Um, this is a good strain to pair with any anything like that, a nice hot drink. Um, for patients, medical patients, it's really good for, uh, I would say, depression uh, and also nausea. Uh, a lot of people who kind of get uh, nauseous and migraines, uh, migraine headaches. This is one of the few strains that kind of uh, that I would recommend specifically for migraine headaches. Um, a little bit of a pain to grow uh, that longer flowering time. Uh, you need to feed it lightly, uh, like most sativas. Um, they tend to need a little bit of special care and light feeding. Um, lower branches are going to get plenty of light, so you will have smaller buds that fill out and stuff. So uh, another interesting thing is in Spain and even Canada, uh, where there's issues with mold, they have found that Cali mist can resist the mold in some of those uh, more humid climates in the fall so uh check out seriousseeds.com uh the cali mist it's spelled with a k k-a-l-i mist 
uh, is really one of those throwback strains that I will continue to love for the rest of my life because it's really just one of those uh, top-notch strains, almost a psychedelic effect um, in Amsterdam in the daytime. You get on your bike and um, ride through Vondel Park after a spliff of Cali Mist, and uh, it's really uh, it, it, it's a wonderful experience. Just got to watch out for uh, dry dry mouth. This is one of those uh, one of those strains that can kind of dry you out there, dry out your eyes too in a weird way. So I don't know if that might help with uh, interocular pressure or something like that, but I know it affects the mouth and the eyes. Uh, and again, stress, anxiety, depression. Uh, this is one of those strains that makes you really feel good. Uh, and it's worth the extra couple weeks of flowering if you're growing it at home for your own personal use. Uh, and because it's so unique uh, and so much on that sativa side, uh, it really does uh, cut through the fog. So that is the Cali Mist, and I hope you guys enjoy it and grow it out for yourself. All right. Strain of the fortnight. Uh, do you remember when we went to Amsterdam in the springtime after years and years of only being there in November? <laughs> It was such a wonderful experience to see it in May, and we got to chat with Sirius Seeds while we were over there. That's right. We talked to Thomas and Simon, and uh, yeah, it was amazing, and it's such a different place. Totally different. <laughs> it's so funny because we went, you know, I would say a dozen or more times, and always in the end of November, uh, and then to see it, you know, in may or june i didn't know they had whenever, sun april it was amazing oh my gosh and everybody's out on their stoops and all the plants and everything are oh, it's just beautiful it was uh quite an experience and you can tell uh you know just by the cost of a flight that uh, that's when more people want to go you know when the tulips are blooming and everything is just uh, you know uh, otherwise, when we go in November, or typically, you know, it would be basically like snowing sideways and getting dark at like 4 mm -hmm. p.m. And <laughs> just a little on the slightly depressing side, you know, you'd show up at a coffee shop and it takes 10 minutes just to get your backpack and your jacket and then your sweater. Get the feeling back in <laughs> you know, your hands, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, and Calumist is, like I said, it's one of those uh, sativas that uh, is very unique and different from uh, your typical, you know, lemon haze or, or super silver uh, or any of those that are, are much more prominent. All right. Excellent. So that is the strain of the Fortnite. Uh, but each week, uh, Dan likes to uh, give a grow tip that's going to help you become a better cultivator. So what do you want to talk about this week? Yes. So this week I have uh, a checklist for anyone who's just curious and interested in getting growing and they just want to know exactly the things that they need and nothing more and nothing less. So I'm basically going to just break down the things you absolutely need if you want to grow indoors in your apartment, in your home, wherever it might be. These are, these are things you absolutely need. So you might even want to grab a pen um, and actually make a checklist for yourself. Uh, th this is what I recommend. These are the things you need. Okay, so the first thing you need is a, a grow tent. Uh, you don't need the whole kit and caboodle with the hydro system and everything inside. You just need the tent and s some other things. But you don't, like I said, you don't need all the plastic that comes uh, with, you know, the reservoir and the uh, hydro and the pumps and this and that. So the tent, uh, specifically for growing, so it's got the holes cut 
you know, for intake and outtake and it's light tight and all of that. And one person can set it up and take it down the tent. Okay. You need a light. Uh, this could be an led. This could be an HID. This could be a fluorescent. Uh, I recommend either the HID or the led, uh, HID is going to produce probably more, a bigger, denser harvest, uh, but also create a lot more heat. LEDs have gotten pretty amazing. And in a tent, I think LEDs are the way to go these days. So a nice, strong LED light, do your research. So that's so far, that's two things, a tent and a light. Um, beyond that, you're going to need fans. Okay. You're going to need an exhaust fan to pull the hot air out. Um, you're going to need tubing, uh, for that fan and you're going to need a charcoal filter that's going to clean the air that's coming out of that fan. Other fans you're going to need inside the, the tent, at least one oscillating fan that just moves air around. You're going to need containers in which to put your growing medium. You're going to need a growing medium. So I just recommend basic soil mixes or technically soilless mixes. I really love this product uh, called Bio365 that I've been trying and using and and experimenting with. It's very light and airy. Uh, hand watering that uh, is very simple. Uh, doesn't The water doesn't pool on top of it or anything. You're going to need a medium and you're going to need containers. So far, that's tent, light, fans, tubing, charcoal filter, containers, and grow medium. You're going to need a timer for the light. That's going to turn the light on and off when you need it on and off. So during the vegetative stage, maybe you have it on for 20 hours, 18 hours or so, off for four hours, six hours, whatever it might be. When you start the flowering process, you switch that timer to 12 hours on, 12 hours off. Make sure you get a decent timer because, you know, everything depends on that dark 12 hours staying dark. Now you're going to need nutrients. Again, I'm not going to go into detail on recommending which you need, but you need plant food. Uh, you'll probably also end up needing pH up or and pH down uh, in order to adjust your nutrient solution after you've added nutrients to your water and check, check the pH, you're going to, you're going to adjust it to where it needs to be. Um, soilless mix, I would say, I don't know, 6.2, 6.3, 6.4, just a little slightly on the acidic side. Uh, but no less than six really, and no more than seven, somewhere between six and seven, uh, on the pH scale. You're also going to need a watering can uh, or some way to hand water your plants uh, and you know mix up your nutrient solution. That could be as simple as a gallon jug of you know water that's emptied out and now uh, you're using that. Uh, a five-gallon uh, watering can, whatever it is, depending on the size um, and scope of your grow. I also would recommend at least a, a spray bottle or two. I would say one spray bottle for foliar feeding, one spray bottle uh, separated, just in case you might need uh, to spray some kind of insecticidal soaps or something like that. Uh, another thing you need, thermometer and a hygrometer. Uh, these are digital, simple, fairly cheap, uh, you know, $20, $30 instruments, but they tell you a lot about what's going on in your space and what you need to do to adjust the climate in your space to be best for your plants. I didn't mean to use the phrase be best, but there it is. Uh, you're going to need uh, seeds 
or clones. I mean, that's the genetic material from which you'll be growing. So you're going to have to find a way uh, to get some seeds or some clones. If you're getting clones, uh, you know, be sure to make sure they're clean. Uh, if you're already growing and you're getting clones, keep those clones separated. Uh, as we say now, uh, you know, isolated uh, apart from every all your other uh, plant material. Uh, you'll probably need uh, air conditioning in the room that the tent is in. Uh, and you might need a humidifier or a dehumidifier in that room as well. Uh, other things you're definitely going to need at some point is a magnifying glass or a loop, some, some way to really look closely at your plants, uh, the undersides of the leaves, all kinds of things, um, pre-flowers. And you're going to need scissors, uh, clippers of some kind uh, to trim the plants uh, after you harvest and all of that. Uh, so that's pretty much a checklist of all the things you need. You what The things you don't need, you don't need expensive hydroponic equipment. Uh, you don't need uh, really complex nutrient systems that have like 18 different things that you have to mix together with each other. Uh, you don't need, uh, well, there's a lot of things you don't need, but these are the things you do need. Uh, so hopefully you write them down. If not, rewind, start over, and, and really just break it down. Tent, light, fans, tubing, containers, medium, timer, nutrients watering can, thermometer, hygrometer, genetic material, uh, AC, humidifier, dehumidifier, loop, scissors, uh, clippers, trimmers of some kind. And you're going to need your passion and your joy for cultivating and growing this wonderful plant uh, and maintain that even in the face of uh, adversity. So there you have it. That is my checklist for getting growing today. And again, the all of this, uh, or mo almost all of this, could probably be purchased for under fifteen hundred bucks with the tent, the light, and all of the equipment. So, if you're thinking about it, you got some space on the credit card. You're tired of spending, you know, fifty, sixty bucks an eighth. Get growing. There's your checklist. Start today. <laughs> all right. So that uh, was the grow tip and now it's time to take some questions from listeners if you have a question uh, please email us that is info at growbudyourself.com so let's uh let's jump right in here with beggar's tune and he writes uh, i got a new grow tent with a thousand watt light the inside of the tent is very reflective and working in it, even for a short period of time, leaves me seeing spots and quite blind when I go back to normal lighting conditions. I'm concerned about my eyesight, so how can you protect yourself in an indoor grow? What do you think, Dan? All right, so um, luckily for you, these days, there's actually uh, eyewear made just for grow rooms that will protect your vision. Uh, and you should get, for sure, if you're going to spend any amount of time under, uh, especially a thousand watt light in a grow tent, uh, you're definitely going to need some kind of protection uh, from those rays that are coming out. Um, there's a bunch of different brand names out there, Nectar, uh, Lumi, Apollo. Uh, those all provide a variety of affordable options. Uh, I got to say, my favorite company that makes eyewear, uh, and they make it specifically for HPS, metal halide, LED, uh, and sunlight outdoor protection is method seven uh, method seven glasses were developed by our friend uh, our high times colleague jeff goldberg uh, sadly passed away 
but he was very he he used the technology that he 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 uh, developed to take photographs of cannabis under grow lights in order to create uh, these lenses. So basically, as a professional cannabis photographer, uh, Jeff recognized the need for these protective lenses. Uh, he's talked to a lot of growers. I spent a lot of time under this artificial lighting. And basically, the technology that he implemented for shooting the photos, um, the different gels that he used uh, on the lenses to white balance uh, his photographs uh, under a, a variety of different indoor spectrums, uh, are these products that he developed for Method 7. So they're a little pricier than the other brands that I mentioned, but they're specifically made for each of these things. And it's really, they're at the forefront of grow room eyewear technology. Um, no matter what lighting that you grow under, you need to get yourself some kind of glasses. They also make clip-ons that go over your existing class glasses. So um, if you have prescription glasses, you can just use the clip-ons that clip right on. Uh, and that way you can protect your eyesight. And you, the other thing is you can actually see what's going on at leaf surface. Because if you're just looking at uh, plants under an HPS light, they're going to look reddish-orange and you're not gonna see what they truly look like under natural light um, without using some kind of, of these glasses that will actually white balance and show you the green of your, of your plants. And you'll see if they're, if they're deficient in nitrogen or they need uh, a bump up of CalMag or whatever it might be, you're not gonna really see it as well without uh, glasses that can basically white balance and show you what what your plants really look like and not under uh, halides or sodiums or LEDs. All right, there you go. Thank you, Beggar's Tune. Let's go to Invictus Grower, who writes, My crop is currently in the vegetative stage. It's getting close to the point of taking clones. I've always seen the technique of taking clones while the plant is still in veg. I have just stumbled across a technique called monster cropping basically taking a clone from an already budding or flowering plant in the first few weeks of flower and then reverting it back to veg. My question is, which technique is best? And if monster cropping is best, is it better to cut the small popcorn buds off and make it look like a veg clone or just leave the small buds on? I've seen videos of both techniques and when the buds are left on, after the plant reverts to veg, the bud sites grow crazy amounts of branches. I'd love to hear your thoughts on cloning versus monster cropping. So, yeah, what would you say here to Invictus Grower? Yes. Okay, this is a great question. Uh, I do not advise taking clones from flowering plants, uh, even if it's just the first couple of weeks of flowering. Uh, the extra time that it takes to revert them back into the veget stage uh, and the potential stress that you're going to cause to the plant by doing that, reversing back to veg, uh, different plants are going to react with strange behaviors. Um, you could get uh, hermaphrodism, uh, world phyllotaxy, uh, all kinds of weird uh, behaviors from the plant as it's stressed. And I think that the healthiest cuttings you can get are going to come from strong and healthy vegetative plants, uh, mother plants. You can do it, you know, clone of a clone of a clone, as long as you do that in the vegetative stage. So feel free to take clones from your plants when they're in veg. Uh, but I would avoid taking clones from budding plants. And, you know, you mentioned trimming off uh, the pre-flowers or the, the beginnings of the flowers. That's fine, but the plant still thinks it's flowering, even if you do that. I mean, it doesn't, you're not convincing the plant 
it's going to take a week or two of being under uh, vegging style lighting for the plant to revert back. Um, so I, I, unless you time this perfectly, I would say somehow within the first week of flower, I don't, I wouldn't risk it. I don't think going back and forth between vegging and flowering is a good idea. Um, the only time I would recommend taking clones from a flowering plant uh, would be basically to save genetics from being lost. So if you find some amazing phenotype, uh, but you've flowered the plant out, uh, but you want to keep, keep it around, you want to make a mother plant off it, I would say take a clone of it, root it, uh, put it under 18 to 20 hours of light per day, uh, and eventually that's going to revert back to its veg stage, and you'll have a plant you can take cuttings from that will be those genetics, but it's really kind of a last-ditch thing just to save genetics from being lost rather than, uh, I would say, any kind of production or, or, or monster cropping technique. All right, there you go. Hope that helps you out. Invictus Grower, uh, we got time to do one more, so let's head over to Facebook where Richard wrote, Hello, Danny and Mike. I love the podcast and all the great info you provide. So last year was my first grow outside. I had a bunch of random seeds that all turned out to be female. I harvested, and while grinding, I found two seeds from one plant and maybe eight from another. These two plants were the best of the bunch, so I planted these seeds this year. My main question is, how does this happen? How come I got seeds from a female and only a few at that? Was it pollinated somehow? Could the light from the street lamps cause this? And what are the chances all these seeds are female again? Thanks in advance. I love the podcast. So, yeah, what would you say here to Richard? Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, plants that are grown outside are going to be exposed more so to stray pollen. And I think that's what happened here. I mean, that's the most likely thing that happened here um, is that stray pollen flying through the air uh, ended up just, you know, getting into your, your female flowers and creating just a few seeds here and there, uh, which does happen. The problem is you don't know what males that stray pollen came from. And you're right. They could have this could have happened uh, through self-pollination if the plants were stressed by something like streetlights or, or just in general, like uh, prone to hermaphrodism, um, in which case they probably will tend to be female, although they're probably 50% female, 50% hermy in that case. Um, if it came from some random male pollen from a mile away that flew past your, your garden, then the the plants will be 50 50 male or female or approximately um but uh yeah i mean that's how it happens basically i mean male pollen or some type of pollen it doesn't necessarily have to be quote unquote male but it could be pollen from a female that's stressed out um but some type of pollen has to then uh pollinate the female plant and then create a seed uh Many great strains have come from these type of interactions, uh, but just as many and way more uh, are not great strains and are just kind of like random hookups. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. And because you, those, it was the two best plants of the bunch, I would imagine, um, you know, whatever seeds and plants you get from out of those seeds are going to be decent. Uh, but at the same time, it's really hard to know what they are because who knows where that pollen came from. Uh, outdoor plants are subject to be pollinated uh, much more so than indoor plants, particularly if you have 
uh, filtration on your intake uh, on your indoor plants. Uh, but it's still a thing. And I mean, it could have even been hemp plants that pollinated it, in which case um, the resulting genetics will probably be more watered down with less THC and, and the tendency to stretch in the way that hemp plants do. So uh, it's kind of a, you know, you're kind of rolling the dice, planting those seeds. Uh, anything can happen, but uh, hopefully you get the heart eight. That's a reference to a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Philip Seymour Hoffman, Philip Baker Hall, R.I.P., R.I.P. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, obscure reference there from Danny Danko, but uh, excellent advice there. We hope that helps you out, Richard. Um, thank you to everybody who wrote in this week. If you have a question you would like answered on the show, get in touch with us. The email, as always, is info at growbudyourself.com. And be sure to check out uh, patreon.com slash Danny Danko. We're going to take a bonus grow question there and that's going to be about the best lighting for clones so uh why don't we take a little break come back and wrap this one up let's do it Hey guys, I want to tell you about one of our favorite sponsors, Excelsior Extracts. Outcast and TOH from Excelsior are incredible people, incredible growers, and they make an amazing product. Their THC-infused pain rub is made by patients for patients, and it provides powerful relief from pain. This product was developed to treat Outcast's chronic pain, and trust me, this is a super potent topical that really works. You can find out more about Excelsior on Instagram at Excelsior Extracts. That's E-X-C-E-L-S-I-O-R-E-X-T-R-A-C-T-S. DM them there to learn more about their amazing pain rub. And don't forget to tell them that Grow Bud Yourself sent you. Hey, all right. Welcome back, you guys. This is The Wrap. I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, Thank Dr. Amanda Ryman uh, for being such an amazing guest on the show. Uh, Thank our sponsors, Sweet Leaf Nutrients. Remember the code DANKO15 gets you 15% off of everything at their website. Uh, Excelsior Extracts, the THC-infused pain relief rub. Uh, Check them out on Instagram. Vapor.com as our affiliate as well. The code GrowBudYourself20 gets you 20% off everything site-wide. I would imagine the new uh, Puffco uh, amazing product that they just put out is up there as well that you can get that on. Uh, Sponsor Prime Superior. Uh, The code there is PS420 for 15% off. Uh, You can learn more about the Prime Superior product uh, on episode 91. Uh, that's when we spoke with Dr. Paul Rushton and Todd Young of Prime Superior. Uh, they really discuss uh, the benefits of Prime Superior for your grow and how it can benefit anybody's grow. So uh, check out that episode 91 with them. Um, thank you to everyone on Patreon that supports us. I think we're up to like 50 or 60 people. It's pretty awesome. Uh, you get a bunch of free stuff if you sign up there. And you can sign up for as little as $4.20. Uh, a month so please do sign up you can get f- a free copy of my book you can get nutrients you can get uh stickers all kinds of cool stuff uh so you know give us a shout out on patreon youtube uh shout out to dj shock and winstrong as always of course my my co-host and producer mike g and uh yeah man uh episode 97 let's uh put this double header in the books <laughs>